This Palm Sunday brings us to the last of the six sermons that we have been sharing with you about a specific focus as a way into joy. This morning's focus is the way of courage. Exemplified, I think, historically as this incredible act of love and self-sacrifice that Jesus gives up to us as he rides into Jerusalem. May God give us an understanding of this word as it is given to us from the gospel according to Mark. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say this, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. And as they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, What are you doing, untying that colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and then they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead... And those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, He went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Courage is one of those mysterious virtues that you do not know really how much you have until the time comes that you need it. Like the cowardly lion, it cannot be given to us by the wizard, but something that is found deep within hopefully given to us by the power of God. Soldiers often share that they were not only afraid of dying in battle, they were afraid of how much courage they would have when the time for battle came. I'm not talking about bravado here, that bestial instinct in us to look much bigger than we really are in hopes of intimidating our foes. That's often mistaken for courage. I'm not talking about bravado. In fact, bravado is in some ways the opposite of courage, that use of pretense of power to get your own way. It's an act of boldness to intimidate and discourage others. Bravado is about bullying when seemingly you're the only one with the power. Terrorism is about bravado and bullying, not courage. 
It's not courage and bravery that brings ISIS to do what they do. It's bravado and bullying and some mistaken transcendent belief that what they do is of God. When you have seemingly the power on your side and the want to harm others, it doesn't take courage so much as strategy and an execution of the will to exterminate your enemies. Real courage, however, is different than that. It is not so much about using power to coerce others as it is about giving up your power for the sake of others. When someone gives up their life for someone else, say a Marine who throws himself on a grenade to to protect the rest of his comrades, that's courage. When someone gives up some bone marrow or a kidney for the health of another, that's courage. When a young single mother with kids gets up every morning and gets them dressed and fixes them breakfast and gets them off to school and meets them when they get home after she's hard worked all day long and feeds them a meal and gets them to bed so that she can get up the next day and do it in hopes that their, her children will be better off than she was. That's courage. True courage is about saving lives, not taking them. Cancer patients who refuse to give in are courageous. Grieving widows and widowers who face each day with the pain and loss of their loved one but who get up nevertheless and face it with hope and joy are courageous. Teenagers who do the right moral thing even though it goes against their peer group are courageous. Those preachers who stood up for civil rights in the 1960s were courageous, but not near as courageous as those African Americans who refused to be discouraged by the bravado of the racist bullies they faced. It seems to me that one way to tell if it's courage is if it leads a residue of encouragement. It is It is life-giving, not life-taking. It is building up, not tearing down. That's true courage. The other thing about courage is that it never comes without fear. We often wonder, will I have courage enough even though I am so afraid? The fact is, it's the only time you can be courageous The difference is that those with courage refuse to give in to the paralyzing effects of fear. For there to be real courage, there has to be real fear. It is said by William Shedd that a ship is safe in a harbor, but that's not what ships are for. It's as good a metaphor as any, I think, about the power of courage to overcome debilitating effects of fear and insecurity. That great voice of courage in the face of many obstacles, William Churchill, one of the greatest builders of courage against the German assault on Britain, said that success is not final and failure is not fatal. It is, it is the courage to continue that counts. 
My favorite quote of all comes from Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird when talking to his two children said, I wanted you to see what real courage is instead of getting the idea that courage is a man with a gun in his hand. Courage is when you know you're licked before you begin, but you begin anyway and see it through no matter what. That being true, I think there's no greater story of courage than the story of Jesus who gives his life up for the sake of the world. The final chapter of that story begins with this morning's passage and his courageous entry into Jerusalem. Knowing it would begin that long, painful week of suffering, Passion Week, and probably end in his death, he would have to face those two great powers in Israel at the time. The greatest of all was the Roman Empire, and the second greatest were the religious authorities who controlled the temple. He knew he was licked before he began, yet he saw it through no matter what. The courageous part is that he didn't have to be licked at all, no matter what. If it's true that he was the king, the son of God, as the tempter in the wilderness asked three times, going back those 40 days at the beginning of Lent, if it's true that he was the Son of God, then he can turn these stones into bread. If it's true that he's the Son of God, then he can call the angels down. And if indeed he had that power at his hands, the same power that he used to heal others, if he was the Son of God, he could have called those 10,000 angels down to command his army and destroy the lot of them. But instead, he chose not power and force, but powerlessness and what we might interpret as weakness, at least as we define it. Mark's passage is clear about this. Jesus intentionally plans and strategizes to enter Jerusalem in a way that revealed the coercive power as the opposite kind of power that God intended. No bravado here, no sir. He somehow sets up in Bethany the need for a cult and sends his disciples to get it. And when they give the password that the Lord needs it, they let him go. Jesus had planned it all, a cult. Why wouldn't he ride in in a horse, a mighty stallion, white stallion like every other king or conqueror would do? Instead, he chooses a donkey. And the people lined up on both sides of the road, and I think probably curious and a little confused that this king who comes to us is on the back of a donkey but hopeful nevertheless that this king will be the king of David, the son of David, who will be for us that Messiah, that conquering warrior, who will finally set us free through power and force from the Roman Empire. They remembered some of the Bible. It tends to be the way we work. Some of it we claim for ourselves. 
Zechariah, they remembered the part that says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of King David. The part that says, uh, Shout aloud, the king comes to us, triumphant and victorious is he. They remembered that part, but one part they forgot. Yes, triumphant and victorious he comes. Humble and riding on a donkey. We'd rather not claim that part. Instead of Charlie Company rolling in in Humvees, it was more like Charlie Chaplin bumbling in on the back of a donkey. It would be a week still before the full gig was up, and they discovered he had not come with Scud missiles or F-16s. There were no tanks or troops to back him up, only a lone man on the back of an ass with no magic up his sleeve and no coalition in his pocket. Then their shouts of Hosanna went to crucify. Even his disciples. If he refused to use the power of God at hand, out of here. They wanted nothing to do with him. It's a truth we have to claim about ourselves as well. The kind of power that Jesus brings is almost the opposite of what we understand power to be and the opposite of what we think we want. But in the end, the kind of power that Jesus brings is the only kind of power that we most desperately need. Theologians, starting with Martin Luther, have defined being on the right hand, the power of God, and the left hand, power of God. Right-handed power is that power that comes through power and force. It's the hand in those days that always held the sword, that, that held the knife. It's the, it's the power of, of, uh, of, of influence, of uh, the power of coercion. It's what you use your hand for. Everybody wants to sit on the right hand of God for that reason. It's the power side. But the left hand of God is something altogether different. And I mean by this, I'm not talking about political differences between right and left. That's not what this is about. The left hand of God, the power of that is found in sacrifice and love and reconciliation and forgiveness While there are plenty of cases of God's right-handed power being held out in the Bible, God will smite our enemies. God will totally annihilate our enemies. God did, in fact, use God's right hand of power, according to the Bible, several times. The most passionate one, of course, was Noah and the ark when God destroyed the world and started over. That's the right hand of God's power. But as you read the Bible, you begin to see this trend of God, or at least our understanding of God, using less right-handed power and more left-handed power until it comes to its final climax and culmination in this one named Jesus. And we Christians claim that this Jesus as the final and ultimate revelation of who God is The ultimate revelation of God is Jesus, we claim. Then we also have to claim that that God is a God who chooses 
left-handed power instead of right. Jesus knew in the end that right-handed power, as coercive as it is, never really changes anything. Oh, it can subdue. But it's always temporary. As soon as we pulled out of Iraq, the powers of darkness moved in to fill the vacuum. Power, right-handed power, can subdue. But Jesus knew the mind and heart of God. And he knew that left-handed power, open-handed power, is the only power that changes the world or changes us in it. It only works when we give up our power as an act of love. This is what courage is about, I think. And in the end, as Jesus' life and death reveals, God's true nature is left-handed more than right. And so is God's way in the world as this morning's passage, I think, clearly gives witness. He rode into Jerusalem to show us that the only way to find the kingdom of God is to put down our right hand and pick up our left. That nothing good or real or long-lasting can be achieved by coercion or force or threat. Any parent with a child finally comes to understand that. And that only with left-handed love and service can sacrifice actually make a difference. This is courage. And it is also the way into joy. For God's right hand only destroys life, but God's left hand builds it up. Instilling encouragement and not fear. Now, I'll be the first to admit that you cannot run a country or a police force or a political campaign or an NCAA basketball champion with left-handed power. The powers of evil will rip you to shreds, eat you up, and spit you out unless you have some kind of right-handed power to back you up. But you can and must run a church this way. In fact, if we were to live up to the claim that we are the body of Christ, we have to. Which means that every time we face disagreements or conflicts together, or each time that we disagree, we can choose to go either the way of Christ or the way of the world, either the way of left-handedness or right-handedness. If it's right-handed power and the self-righteousness that fuels it, we may win the battle but lose the war. If it's left-handed power, we may have to sacrifice, even be sacrificed. We may not get our own way. We may, in fact, lose the battle, but as Jesus shows, that is the only way to win the war. It's the way of God. How we treat each other, the way we do what we do as a church, right-handed, left-handed, determines how much of the body of Christ we claim for ourselves. That said, God does use right-handed power, of course, but not really in this world. For that, God waits for resurrection. 
for reaching down into the dark depths of death and grabbing hold of it with God's right hand of power and yanking it up into a brand new power. That's God's right-handed power. But you see, it comes not in the world, but after it. This is why the gospel writers spent 25% of their gospel on the passion of Jesus. 25% is on that last week. And it is also why the Apostle Paul wrote in that incredibly moving passage in Philippians, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one word. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And this is the kicker. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the great cosmic irony. Make my joy complete, Paul says, which is the way of humility and complete self-giving and the only courageous way to live. As Jesus shows, the only way to the right hand of God seems to be the way of his left. Amen.